from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. It's a very proven uh, procedure. There's over a million of these done every year. You can year. see my face. This, can... <laughs> this sounds crazy, but it works. It is crazy, but it works. And that's the beauty of medicine, is that this kind of constant march towards progress. Our robot are actually magnets on, on robotic arms on both sides of the patient, and a physician sits behind a computer and is able to actually control the very precise directioning of that magnetic field. The value, in my mind, of this system is its um, precision and safety. You feel like you can really do that here. That's still a lot of square footage. I mean, you guys are taking up a ton of space. We have big aspirations. I'm Sarah Fetsky. Stereotaxis was one of the first tenants in St. Louis's Cortex Innovation District back in the early aughts. Now the growing surgical instrument maker is leaving the tech hub. They're heading to a new, bigger home downtown. It's the former home of the St. Louis Globe Democrat. Stereotaxis was founded 32 years ago, and it's been a long journey to get to this point. And joining us now with more about the company's story is David Fischel. He is the CEO and chairman of Stereotaxis. David, welcome. Hi, sir. Good afternoon. So this is a big day for you. You're opening this new headquarters. You actually have the governor coming to help you do it. Are you all moved in as of today? We are all moved in. We are manufacturing robots, and we are working there. So yeah, we are so happy. you kind of had maybe a little soft opening prior to this grand opening. We had a little soft opening at the start of the year. We've been, uh, we've been getting ourselves situated in there. So that's got to be complicated. I mean, with a business like yours, you're not just sitting behind computers, sort of dreaming dreaming things up. You guys are actually making things. Was it really disruptive to have to pick up and, and get into this new space? It, it was a major effort building a new home because we do have obviously administrative uh, functions at our headquarters. We have a lot of R&D with specific equipment and testing equipment that they need. We have actual operating rooms where we can train physicians on our technology. And then we manufacture uh, fairly sophisticated robots um, uh, in our manufacturing facility and distribution center. So that's a whole lot. It is a lot. And you're moving that all, you're combining, basically. You had two previous buildings, you're now moving into one? Well, we were in one building at Cortex. We were split on two different floors. We are now combined on one uh, kind of combined same floor, 45,000 square feet uh, facility. Does that make things a lot easier to have everything now all on one floor? I'd say it's less a thing of ease. It's more a thing of it, it facilitates a nicer collaboration between the organization because instead of the team being split in kind of on two floors and with some distance between them, you really are an integrated team. And you do need all aspects. A, a company is like a human body. You need all aspects to work together well. And, um, and it's nice when they're close together. Yeah, and you feel like you can really do that here. That's still a lot of square footage. I mean, you guys are taking up a ton of space. We have big aspirations. Big aspirations. So do you see this as part of plans to eventually grow this workforce here in St. Louis? Yeah, one of the one of the big reasons why we moved to the Globe Building into the current facility and we spent quite a lot of money uh, on the move was because we view it as a good home for the next decade at least. And um, 
and uh, and hope to be able to grow nicely there over the coming years. So you have 140 people right now. How many do you think you could comfortably house in this space that you're in? So we have about 100, um, nearly 140 people globally. Uh, we do have commercial teams and field service people that work uh, around the world close to where the customers are. We have about 100 hospital customers globally mm-hmm. um, across the U.S., Europe, Asia. Um, uh, so about 90 of the of our employees are based in St. Louis. And um, and we 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 think that the new facility should be able to facilitate quite a lot of growth in that over the coming years, and will also allow us to manufacture uh, multiples of what we're able to manufacture uh, previously. So I feel like you're kind of part of a trend here. You're moving into an old newspaper building, and that is something that Square, which has since changed its name to Block, they will always be Square to me. I don't know that I can adjust to this, but Block took over the old Post Dispatch building last year. What is it that tech companies, people doing things like robotics, like about these old newspaper buildings? The, mo- the biggest coincidence is that Square was a subtenant of ours at Cortex. Is that and right? so we both independently chose, without obviously coordinating anything, to move uh, within a block from each other in downtown. And and I obviously I can't speak to Square though there or to Block though their uh, their their office building looks beautiful from the outside. I've never been inside yet, uh, but uh, but the Globe Building provided a really nice modern um, uh, office space. Uh, that was a shared use space where we could do high-tech manufacturing, we could do shipping and distribution, uh, we could have office space and R&D space all in a combined area. Um, They've really transformed the building uh, to be a hub for connectivity and various tech companies, primarily geospatial companies. And and so it just felt like a good modern home for for everything that we want to do. It's interesting. I think of the first newspaper I worked for and the printing press was there on the ground floor and you had reporters then working upstairs. Newspapers maybe kind of pioneered this idea of you'd have like, you'd be making things on the same site that people would also be thinking about things. Yeah, that's actually a beautiful analogy. That one of the nicest things is um, there's a little, not a museum, but um, a little display uh, on one of the floors of the Globe Building where they actually talk about the role the building had during World War II mm-hmm. as um, as kind of the primary source for all the mapping. Uh, they would draw maps for the armed services, Air Force, Army, and Navy all around the world, and it would be shipped from there. So I guess even before it was a newspaper hub, it was really this uh, both a library of all the maps of the world, uh, all the workers who would write maps, and then uh, shipping them out uh, to the combat theaters. So you're part of this very cool history here. There is a very nice history. And you're moving downtown at a point when in St. Louis and I think around the country, people are kind of worried about downtowns. You know, during the pandemic, a lot of people started working remotely. A lot of them decided they really liked it. They didn't necessarily want to go back to being in an office. And you see a lot of downtowns have sort of come into some trouble because of that. Without those office workers there all the time, there's just, you know, there's some more troublemakers that have kind of moved in to fill that vacuum. How do you feel about being being in downtown St. Louis. So I personally moved. I, I like to live close to the office. I personally moved to downtown a few months ago. And overall, I've enjoyed actually the transition. There is, um, I, I don't have the context of how it was years ago. Mm-hmm. But um, overall, there is life to the city. There are restaurants. There are activities to do there. Um, and yeah, it, it would be nice uh, the more our, our governments can help ensure that it's also safe and that things are kept clean would obviously be great. Mm-hmm. But overall, I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't fear walking to and from the office at night. Um, and, uh, and we've overall found it a good home for us. And you feel like your workforce, are they happy to be in person, not to just be doing everything over Zoom? <laughs> 
human beings are complicated, and there's a whole range of emotions. Uh, <laughs> this is of a emotions. very diplomatic answer. So, so there's, there's obviously, even through, even through the, the entire pandemic, even in March, April, May of two years ago, uh, we, uh, we, we manufacture robots, we support robotic systems that are at hospitals around the world that treat patients. Um, those are kind of critical types of technologies that without them working, uh, true harm can exist. And so we had manufacturing people and R&D people and service people um, who were in the office all through those um, those events because it is important and and you do need to sometimes be with the technology that you're working with in order to make sure it works. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've maintained this uh, balanced posture where Obviously, on the one hand, you need to ensure that your team is uh, is safe and protected. Um, on the other hand, you need to ensure that there is progress and that you're able to to serve the customers that you need to serve and the patients and physicians that you serve. And um, and we've seen more and more, obviously, like most companies, a trend towards coming back to the office. There's a type of collaboration that can take place there uh, better, while obviously respecting. Uh, those that uh, that are more concerned or have their own safety risks where they need to stay home. So you have some, it sounds like you still have some flexibility for your workforce, but people are more or less back at least some days every week. Is, yep. is that the sense yep. of things? The, the majority come back. Um, it obviously depends also on the department. Certain types of activities can very easily be done remotely. Uh, others, you really have to be on site. And so there's a type of hybrid, um, hybrid force that is forming um, where Typically, most people will come in uh, at least some of the week, and obviously those that need to be more around, like in research and development, where there is really an importance of collaborating and working on equipment, uh, obviously manufacturing, uh, things of those sorts, supply chain, uh, those have been those have really been at the office uh, almost the entire time. So something else about this location that, that kind of uh, caught my eye is that you're less than a mile from the new NGA site. The federal government will be putting a lot of people also right in this neighborhood, and they will not be working remotely either. They're, for the most part, they're all going to be there. Um, do you feel like there's maybe some some synergy there or some reason that this is good to be close to them? So for us, it doesn't really, we obviously don't, we don't kind that's of sell to the government. That's not our field at yeah. all. Um, I think the coming of NGA is really what has prompted this resurgence of many other companies moving into the Globe Building and into the general downtown uh, district. Um, and so I, I can sense that most of the companies that are moved there are in the geospatial intelligence uh, space. They probably will serve the NGA. And so uh, that is probably one of the biggest factors leading to the resurgence in downtown. So that's really helping with the energy in the neighborhood, even yep. if it doesn't end up being a direct factor for you guys. Yep, exactly. We're talking today to David Fischel. He is the CEO and chairman of Stereo Texas. That's a local company that is seeing some big growth, has plans for much bigger growth. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with David. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.
Welcome back. Today we're talking to David Fischel. He is the CEO and chairman of Stereo Texas. As of today, they are officially moved into their very exciting new headquarters. That's in the Globe Building, previously the home of the St. Louis Globe Democrat, um, a building that they hope will support a lot of growth. They see real potential here. That wasn't always the case for this company, David. So you took over the chief executive post in 2017, and this has been well chronicled that this company was nearly going out of business, $20 million in debt. Today, Stereo Texas has no debt, $40 million in cash. What was the key to making that big a turnaround in just five years? So Stereo Texas has a very interesting technology that provides meaningful clinical value in important fields of medicine. Um, but but it had a range of challenges over the years. Um, uh, and and what we observed is is kind of that we could work off of the base of a fundamentally good technology with good clinical value and rebuild a healthy company on top of it. The first thing you need in any business uh, turnaround is you need to have alignment of interests and the right corporate governance. And so one of the first things is kind of coming in as a leader, you need to show that you're leading from the front. So let's say I didn't come in with a salary because if you have a company that's near near death's door, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to contribute to that uh, decline. Uh, we made sure that the board also was compensated in, exclusively in stock rather than in cash. And then you start to implement the right changes that create a culture of of everyone is an owner of the company, mm. we want to see success, and if you're there to build a successful and impactful company, you should be there, and if you're there for titles or for uh, or for other reasons, probably it's not the right home for you. Did you have to do some house cleaning? Th- there was, it was a relatively natural house cleaning, because I think as you set the tone within the company, the right people blossom within it, and the people who aren't going to blossom generally learn that they should find another home. And so you had spotted this company. You were working in in more the investment space, and you realized, okay, this company has potential. You decided to sort of change your life, jump all in on this. Were you you taking a pretty big risk at that point? I'd say sometimes you go on great adventures that are once-in-a-lifetime adventures. Um, Yeah, I come from Los Angeles. We we have an investment firm uh, called Daphne Capital. Uh, We're for over 20 years now. We've invested in uh, in biotechnology and medical device companies that are really on the cutting edge of medicine, trying to push the boundaries of, uh, of medical care. And um, I've always been a passive fundamental investor in medical device companies across the clinical spectrum, came across stereotaxis and was intrigued by, on the one hand, how uh, interesting and exciting the technology is. We, we build robots that allow physicians to do heart surgery with greater precision and safety. So it's kind of a, it's interesting technology. It was actually working in the real world. Hospitals like Barnes Jewish and Missouri Baptist here in St. Louis uh, use it to treat thousand plus patients. And and it had very, very good clinical data. The first rule in investing, uh, at least investing in healthcare, is you ask yourself, if God forbid someone in my family had this disease, mm-hmm. would I want them treated with this drug or this device or not? And all of us kind of would say that Without a question, we would want to be treated with this technology. Hmm. And so we saw on the one hand that, but on the other hand, a company that was um, had deep been declining for several years and was nearly uh, nearly going out of business. And, and that's kind of an amazing dichotomy. You usually don't see things like that. And so we decided to go on an adventure and to... And, and yeah, I came here and uh, we gave the company operating capital so it could pay off all its debt. And so it had operating capital to invest in 
uh, in development and into kind of rebuilding the company and um, came here to start to also uh, participate uh, actively in that. It's interesting to hear you talk about this because it sounds like it really all comes down to this device. Like you knew this device was so good that it deserved a better company. Um, well, our producer Alex Hoyer talked to Dr. Mitchell Faddis. He's an electrophysiologist at Barnes Jewish Hospital. He's also director of clinical cardiac electrophysiology at the WashU School of Medicine. He was part of research efforts in the late 90s and early aughts that helped develop this stereotaxis system. He says he's performed several hundred operations with it. The value, in my mind, of this system is its um, precision and safety. So those are the two values. It is invasive in that the catheter that does the treatment and the mapping is inside the heart, and it's gotten there through an IV in the leg. Um, the alternative technique is for me to stand um, by the patient and manipulate um, the catheter from outside the body uh, and to try to have millimeter precision with where I put the tip of the catheter on the inside of the heart. And the heart's beating, uh, so it's moving in space, and there's breathing that's occurring, so the the heart goes up and down with the mo uh, respiratory motion. So there's lots of challenges to do that manually. And the, um, the stereotaxis system is a more accurate way to do that. And that is Dr. Mitchell Faddis. So by having these robots kind of be able to do this really complicated, really important heart procedure, you're maybe taking out the potential for human error? Yeah, there's adding precision, exactly like Dr. Faddis mentioned, adding precision and reducing the safety risks. Um, and that's really what robots are meant to do, are to, to enhance the capabilities of, of humans. And so the physician now does the procedure sitting at a computer cockpit um, and is really controlling the interventional devices through that computer system. You know, Dr. Faddis, he talked about how this system has evolved over the years since he got um, into first using it. And he said that, um, it, you know, one example is using almost video game controllers to control this robotic technology. Right now, I use mainly a mouse. I found that to be the most intuitive for me, but I didn't grow up doing computer games. So I think the next generation of people will probably prefer something else. So just thinking about how he's using this, Dr. Faddis might be sitting at his desk. He's doing this surgery with a mouse. Somebody else might, down the road or right now, play this almost like a video game? Yeah, we have, let's say, simulators, so we can actually train physicians now from their home. They can use a, a normal computer, and they can, uh, like a computer game, they can learn, though it's obviously more important than a computer game because you're actually learning how to treat patients, and so you can simulate procedures um, and really train on um, on kind of medical therapy from from, from any computer. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, so the growth in how this device originally worked, it seems like what they were doing in the 90s, there's no way that it was doing that. Well, so let, I can maybe give you a little bit of broader context on what actually our technology does. If you think there's, in medicine, there's um, a class of surgeries, a very broad class, there's 10 plus million of these a year, uh, called endovascular surgery. They're minimally invasive procedures where you use the body's vascular system as a type of highway to get where you need to go. So let's say if previously, if um, uh, someone had a heart attack, you would have to do an open chest surgery to do a bypass graft, a cabbage surgery, and now you can introduce 
stents and balloons, right, to Mm -hmm. open up the vessels and provide blood flow to the heart. There's a range of these different procedures that have evolved over the last few decades to really allow minimally invasive surgery uh, to, to, to flourish. Um, if you think about the main challenger that the physician is holding on to a catheter, a flexible device, they're usually holding on to it at one end of the device, at the access site, which is typically in the, near the leg of the patient. But the procedure is taking place two, three, four feet away at the other end of the device. Mm. And so it's almost like a physician's holding on to a, a pencil from its eraser or holding on to a hose but a few feet back from the end of the hose. And you want them to do precision surgery at the tip. And so what Stereotexas did is it it uses very precisely applied magnetic fields to allow for direct control of the tip itself. Mm-hmm. And so we place little ca- little magnets in the tip of a catheter. We make the plastic of a catheter much softer, much more gentle, so that it's less likely to cause any harm. And then our, our robot are actually magnets on, on robotic arms on both sides of the patient. And a physician sits behind a computer and is able to actually control the very precise directioning of that magnetic field. And by doing so, you can imagine that the magnets are like invisible fingers holding onto the tip of the catheter. And that's what leads to the precision. And that's also what allows us to, because you're holding it from the tip, you don't need a rigid plastic, rigid device. You can have very soft, gentle ones, which provide safety benefits. I can see why you were sold on this technology. I mean, this makes so much sense. And it's cool. I understand 140,000 patients have now been treated using this device. That's only 1% of all the procedures that are going on. How much room do you see for growth? Yeah, so we are a tiny, we have focused, while while the technology is a platform technology across this category of endovascular surgery, we've really focused only on one specific um, endovascular procedure, which are uh, cardiac ablation procedures to treat heart arrhythmia. So if the heart doesn't beat regularly, if it's beating irregularly, there's a type of procedure that electrophysiologists like Dr. Faddis and others uh, do where they introduce a catheter into the heart, and then they actually burn little parts of the heart muscle that are misbehaving. Mm -hmm. And by isolating those misbehaving heart muscle cells, they can get the heart back into a normal rhythm. It's a very, it's a very proven uh, procedure. There's over a million of these done every year. You can see my face. This this sounds crazy, (laughs) but it works. It is crazy, but it works. And that's the beauty of medicine is that this kind of constant march towards progress. Uh, It still is relatively miserable being a patient, as any of us who have been a patient knows. But overall, medicine uh, advances in a very nice kind of uh, fashion. And the therapy that we get today is better than what was provided 10 years ago, and it will be better in 10 years from now. And what um, and, and the intrinsic challenge of endovascular procedures is that you have these limitations where when you take control of a catheter from one end, but you have to do surgery from the other, your precision is always limited. Your stability is always limited. The safety profile always has risk to it. And so really, when I looked at stereotexas, it had this ability to broadly uh, improve and advance that field of medicine. And we've only been really focused on electrophysiology, where, as you mentioned, we have about 1% market share, so we're still a very small player in the field. Um, But we're also going to be looking towards other endovascular specialties over the next year or two and uh, hope we can provide some benefit there as well. Yeah, I mean, in our final moments here, it seems like with this kind of technology, uh, there there could be all sorts of applications that you're currently not even, um, you know, trying to sell within. There's, There's a lot of possibility here. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, this seems very exciting. I'm, I'm excited for you guys. This new headquarters sounds amazing. Um, just real growth potential here. And how exciting that this is happening in downtown St. Louis. So you're headed off. You're going to see Governor Parson in just a, just a couple hours here. This is a big day for you guys. David Fischel, thank you for making the time to join us and, and share about stereo taxes. Thank you so much, Sarah. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.